Amen. Let's pray together. And uh, as we pray together, let's remember uh, what has gone on in our nation uh, recently up in Charlottesville. And let's remember what God wants to do here in your life today. And God, we do pray as we come to you. There's uh, many that are injured in Charlottesville. Lord, I pray that you would, your healing touch would be upon them. But also, Lord, your healing touch would be upon our land. And uh, we would not have the hatred that we see that has been really uh, going on and just building for even the last, it seems like, eight or ten years. And God, I pray that revival would come to people's hearts and it would begin even right here, that we could do something not only in our community but also nationwide that we could help uh, mend the fences that are broken and have people come to know Christ. God, I pray that this morning as we start this series of messages, I know that this is a, <clears throat> a really basic start to the series. And so, Lord, I pray for everyone here that this message would apply to their heart and especially to those who are doubting. And we'll pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we do begin a series of messages this morning as we have uh, advertised and as we've let you know about, and that is seven enemies to our faith and how to defeat them. Next week, we're going to be looking at temptation. And, uh, you know, hey, the life that you save may be your own, you know, so you come and, and be involved in that. And then, um, but this morning, I want to talk about something that's really kind of foundational to it all, and that is doubt, particularly doubting uh, your salvation experience. I just had a conversation this past week, and I did not start it among pastors who have story after story of members of their church, deacons, Sunday school teachers, and, and leaders in the church that have come to know Christ later in life because they had doubted their salvation. Well, let me tell you my story a little bit. I was saved at the age of 16 and um, began to follow Christ for a while. But then I began to slip away. And I remember at the University of Georgia, I was a student there, meeting in front of Reed Hall, which is near Sanford Stadium, at, with someone from a campus ministry. And uh, my, my friend and I were there meeting with this fellow, and he began to talk to us a little bit, kind of build up a rapport. And then he asked me a question. And this question really determined the rest of my Christian experience. The rest, it answered the question to many things in my Christian life. And here was the question. Never heard it before. Here was the question. He's, he looked at me and said, Dwayne, if you were to die tonight, do you know for certain, beyond any doubt, do you know that you would go to heaven? Wow. That was a tough question, especially since I'm sitting right beside one of my very close friends who believes that kind of talk is really presumption. I mean, how can you know, right? How can you actually know for certain? Well, it's kind of important very important, in fact. In fact, the whole book of 1 John that we're turning to this morning is based upon that claim. The word know, K-N-O-W, is used 33 times in this little epistle. And it's John, the apostle John, who walked with Jesus those three and a half years, who wrote the gospel of John, the books of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation, is writing near the end of the first century. And false doctrine had already infiltrated the church. And so it was necessary for him to lay down what salvation really is and how we can actually know that we have the salvation. Because that's so, just a few moments ago, you're talking about a chain breaker. How do you know he's been a chain breaker to you? 
How do you know he's, the psalm before that, he's always going to be with you, that he's never left you? How do you know the promises of the Bible are for you? What if you go to the Lord in prayer and you say, well, I don't even know if God's listening to my prayer or not because I don't even know if I'm a believer or not. I've prayed the prayer. I've been baptized. I've been christened. I've done this. I've, in fact, I feel like I've covered all my bases. I pray the prayer of salvation with a pastor every single week and assurance never really seems to come. And it is vital to our Christian experience. In fact, you can, let me say this, you can be saved this morning. You can have regeneration in your heart, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, and not know for sure because there are different reasons why people doubt. Number one, early childhood decision. Maybe you, you received Christ like my wife, that you'll hear her, her story here in just a few moments. Um, she was saved at the age of six. And you said, well, I, didn't, I don't know if I knew what I was doing. So it's early childhood decision. Other people really do have some emotional hang-ups, some issues, and they have a self-esteem problem. And they, no matter how often they pray, it seems like it's like, God, I pray to receive Christ and pray to receive Christ. But the bottom line is, I'm not sure I'm worthy. There's other people who have bitterness in their heart, an unforgiving spirit. And the Bible says that's going to hurt your assurance as well. But then there's some people that just don't know. They don't really know the true plan that God has made for their salvation and have not really trusted Christ as Savior and Lord. And so we're going to be looking at this passage this morning. I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 2. And as you're turning there, 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says this. Paul said, different writer in the Bible, said this, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. And so we're going to be looking this morning in this passage at three witnesses, three evidences of spiritual life within you. The evidence or witness of our life, the witness of the Holy Spirit, and the witness of the Word of God. And so let's look at verse 2 as we look at the witness of our life. Verse 1 says, my little children, this is, this is a, a phrase he uses all throughout the book just to refer to Christians in general. He says, my little children, endearing, uh, you know, phrase for a Christian, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, why would he write that? Well, if you look up in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, you think about it for just a moment. It's the same way with preaching. It's the same way with teaching a small group. You've got to know your audience a little bit. And he knows, he thinks he knows his audience. And he starts talking about how we can be forgiven of every sin that we ever commit, even after we're saved. We have this relationship with God. Hey, look, if you sin, you just take it to the Lord, you confess it, and God will forgive that sin. You can just move on. Then he thinks to himself, well, wait, wait a minute now. I don't want to give you an excuse to sin. So let me give you the flip side of it as well. And from this, we see that he sort of not sneaks in, but gives us a, a snapshot really quickly of what salvation is about. He says that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What's he saying here? He says, look, we have an advocate. Now, another word for advocate is lawyer. Another word for it is the paraclete. In fact, that's, the, that's really the Greek word behind it. And it's used almost exclusively, not totally, but almost exclusively for the Holy Spirit. 
He's the one that's called alongside of us. He's the one that is our helper. But here it's used in the sense of being a lawyer. And so the courtroom, there's a courtroom scene here drawn up in the picture, in the mind of the Apostle John that he's trying to picture or give us the picture in our lives as well. There's a courtroom scene in the Old Testament. We see that we are sinners separated from God. And the Bible is very clear about that. The Bible uh, teaches us about the justice of God and even the wrath of God. It really teaches us how God feels about sin. And the New Testament tells us how God deals with that sin through grace. Now, here's what happened. You just courtroom scene. The, the prosecutor gets up, and it's the devil himself. You know what we, we talked about last week. And you're the defendant in the end of time. And he looks at you and looks before the judge, our father in heaven. And he looks and he says, look, this guy has committed all kinds of sins. And you think to yourself, no, no, not me. I don't know who he's talking about. He's talking about my brother, but he's not talking about me. You know, I must have a twin, you know, or something. I don't know. And so he, he looks over and he says, you've broken the first commandment. He said, no, I know I have not broken the first commandment. What is the first commandment? Oh, um, and you think to yourself, well, that's not putting any other gods before God. I've never done that. And he brings out how he, you have done that, and I have done that, because we put other things ahead of God. Okay, guilty of one. He goes down one commandment after another. You've not honored your, your mother and your father, have you, in, in a complete sense, in, in 24-7 all of your life? Well, no, I haven't. Have you ever lusted in your heart? Well, yes, I, I've done that. Well, have you ever stolen something? Maybe, I don't know, a joke from somebody or took credit for something. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I guess I've done that. Have you ever lied? Have you ever, have you ever coveted something? And all of a sudden you think to yourself, I've broken them all. And the Bible tells us, according to this lawyer, this prosecutor, he's worthy of death. But then our advocate, the lawyer, Jesus Christ, stands up And he says, your honor, your honor, I have a defense for my client. I died on the cross for him. And so God, Father in heaven, I will take his place. And so our lawyer, our advocate, not only defends us, but he does something for us that we could not do for ourselves. And he's nailed to the cross. And the Bible says in verse 2, he's made a propitiation for our sins. That word... Propitiation means a substitute in a sense that he's taken on the justice of God in our life. He's taken our hell for us. He's taken our sin for us. And so here's Jesus on the cross, and his blood, the Bible says, was poured out for us, and it was a payment for our sin. And now the Father in heaven, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, declares us not guilty and now worthy of heaven, not based on our life, but based on the life of Jesus Christ, his son. That's what it's all about. Now, that's what it's all about. And he says, through this, he says, look, he says, how do you get this? Well, the Bible says in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his love toward us and that why were we yet sinners? Christ died for us. How do we receive Christ? But as many as received him, the Bible says, to them gave he the power to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name, John 1, 12. And so we look at this and we say, well, yeah, you must receive Christ, but how do you know? How do you know you receive that forgiveness? I love 1 John uh, uh, verse, verse 12 of chapter 2. I just want to skip, okay, a little bit. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, here's the question. Have your sins really been forgiven? You know, have you really 
receive Christ as Savior and Lord of your life because this sinfulness is not just about doing certain sins. It's about having an attitude of rebellion in our heart the way Adam had and Eve had against God, the way Satan had against God, and being the Lord of our own life. Lord, I'm willing to surrender now for you to be the Lord of my life. And God forgives you of your sins and makes sure that you get to heaven. Now, how do you know? Well, he gives uh, three evidences of a life of obedience, or four evidences, in in the life as far as the witness of our salvation. Look in verse 3. And by this we know that we know him, for we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, who, who are you lying to? Well, you could be, I guess, knowing. You're sitting here, and, and many people in churches today know that they're not a believer. They're just putting on a masquerade. But that's not really the biggest problem. The biggest problem is that we lie to ourselves. We think, oh, you know, I, I prayed that prayer when I was a little boy. I was at a youth camp one time, and I made a decision. Well, was our life changed in you? Well, well, no, not really, but I prayed the prayer. And the pastor said that if I prayed that prayer, got baptized, whatever, that I was going to be saved. You know, you just got to trust the Word of God on that. And so we look at this, and we say, well, keep His commandments. What does that mean? Does that mean perfection? Well, no, it doesn't. It means that you're growing in obedience to the Lord. It It goes on to say, but whoever keeps His Word... Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Now, the love of God here, the word perfected means completed. How is the, how is the love of God completed? It was completed at the cross. And when you and I show that we are in obedience to God, we're trying to walk, we're making the attempt, conscious attempt to really desire to walk with God, what are we saying? It's a testimony that the love of God through the cross, was completed in us. Then he says, by this we may know that we are in him. Now, this is, this is an evidence right here. This is how you know. Whoever says he abides in him, that is, has a connection with God, ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. And so it's not just a matter of going the same direction. It's a matter of walking the way that he would walk. A life of obedience to him. Ephesians 2, 8, and 8 through 10 really gives us an insight here in Paul's writings. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. You say, aha, it's by the grace of God I'm saved. Absolutely right. No question about it. And it's through faith. It's through believing. We'll come back to that in just a moment. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God. That is a result of works so that no one should boast. You see, you and I are not saved because we are obedient to God. We're not saved because we keep his commandments. That's not what John is saying at all. It's an evidence. It's a witness that our life has been changed. Because it says in verse 10 of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, he says, We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So here's what happens. You and I repent of our sins. We come to a place in our life where we throw our rebellion on the altar of God because the Bible says in 1 Samuel that rebellion is like the sin under witchcraft. When you practice witchcraft, you open up yourself to the power and the realm of Satan. Therefore, the longer you go in rebellion, the more you're, you're further and further away from God and the more you have a tendency to decide for sin in your life. But he says there's an evidence here. 
uh, evidence is this, that you've tasted of the grace of God, that the grace of God, God's undeserved favor, the cross of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus has washed you from all sin. How do you know you have a changed life on the inside? Because the Holy Spirit of God has come to live inside your heart, changed your desires, and now you no longer desire to live for yourself, but now you have a desire to live for God. You see, it's not one of those things, well, this is a committed Christian, this is an uncommitted Christian. You know, here's one that's really had a life change, but here's one that hasn't. But hey, you know, he prayed the prayer, or he got baptized, and he made a, a momentary commitment but even the book of 1 John chapter 2 and verse um, 19 says this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, and that is become plain that they are not all of us. And so there's a life here of obedience to God, of following Christ. But then there's another outward evidence, outward evidence of love. He says in verse 7, Beloved, I am writing to you a new commandment, a no new commandment, he says, but an old commandment that you have been from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, this whole idea of the darkness is passing away, the true light is, is all already shining, has to do with a looking forward to the second coming of Christ. He's looking forward to it. He's, he's anticipating it. But he says it's an old commandment. And the Bible says that the whole of the Ten Commandments can be wrapped up in two, two things. One, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's the Old Testament. Now, why is it new? Because now you've given the power to do it. Now the Holy Spirit of God is living inside your heart. And the Bible says in Romans 5, 5, the love of God is shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And so now not only do I want to live in obedience to God and obedience to the word of God and follow in his steps and walk as Jesus has walked, but now one of those things is to love the brethren. All through the book of 1 John it says this is the evidence that we have. The problem in church is just like a, a great friend of mine, Rodney Autry, put on Facebook last night. He says, the problem is uh, there's a lot of Christians, actually said Baptist, and he's Baptist himself, but it, it applies to many, many Christians in America. The, many Christians don't want the kingdom of God. They want the kingdom of, of Andy, Opie, and Aunt B. Now think about that for just a minute. We want a society that's going to fit us. But we're not looking necessarily to the kingdom of God. He says to love one another. And that doesn't mean you, you hate those who hate everybody else. It means you love everybody. You want people to come to know Christ because you know that is the only way that people is gonna, are going to have that life change in their life. Look in verse uh, 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother, still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. In him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So you're walking around in the darkness, and what do you think? You think, I'm, I'm saved, but, but you hate your brother. You, you have resentment. You have bitterness. When you think about a certain brother, you're, you're just consumed in that bitterness. So you say, well, that doesn't, don't Christians go through that? Well, yes, we do. But you, you solve it. Again, you're becoming, the evidence is you're becoming more and more and more loving 
as you grow in Christ to become more like him. Because the more you obey him and more, more you want to obey him and the more you love other people, it shows that you're growing in Christ and you're getting more of Christ into your life and less of the old self. And so we're tasting of the grace of God. And that's what he's saying here. You've tasted of the grace of God. Now you give grace to others. Remember the story in the Bible. Maybe, maybe you remember it. The parable of the unmerciful servant. And I'm not going to read that to you. I'm just going to give you uh, it, the story in a nutshell as far as uh, our money is concerned in this life. A man goes to his master and the master says, hey, you know, you owe me a million bucks. You owe me a million dollars. How are you going to repay that? And the servant says, I, can, I, I just, I know I can do it. I know I can do it. You know, just give me another chance. Just give me another chance. And so the master looks down at him, and instead of throwing him in a jail, he says, okay, I'll give you another chance, knowing that he cannot repay it. There, he knows this guy. He, he knows he doesn't have the capacity to pay back a million dollars, but he says, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you this grace. So the man gets up. He's jumping up and down. He can't believe it. He's still a free man. And he goes out, and he runs across this guy that owes him $100. And he grabs him by the shirt and he says, you pay me right now or I'm going to throw you into jail. And, it was, you know, he begs just like the other guy begged. And he said, look, I, I can pay you the $100. Really, I can do it. He knows he can't pay the $100. He can't even pay 100 So he throws him into jail. Well, the first master hears about it, goes to him and says, look, I have forgiven you a million dollars and you won't forgive somebody else for 100 and he throws him, he says, into a prison to be tortured. What was the parable all about? The parable is this. You and I have been forgiven of everything that we've ever done. The evidence, the witness of being a Christian then is, I'm giving the same grace to everyone else that I have received. And sometimes that's tough. And sometimes you have to work through it. But you do work through it. Eventually, you work through it. Why? Because that is one of the evidences of salvation. But then also, very quickly, another outward evidence. You need to listen faster. Another one is loyalty. And that is of the world. Do not love the world, he says in verse 15, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For that is the love of the world, the desires of the flesh, the lusts of the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Worldly, worldliness. You know, I'm, I'm more addicted to the applause of men than I am the applause of God. I want to be more so accepted by men that I'm willing to compromise the Bible and my obedience to God in order to win favor with those around me. I want to be thought of better of the, uh, among my peers. And so I'm going to compromise this, and I'm going to count. Oh, I believe that culture di dictates this. Same thing as the world. I believe culture dictates this, so we're just going to change the Bible. What it's saying is, if you're really a believer, you're not going to be in love with the world. I, I remember so many times, I remember one specific time as a student leading someone to the Lord. And I said, boy, this is an exciting time. Now you get to read the Bible. You get to pray. In fact, you can come to church now and really get something out of it. And, and, and the guy looks at me and says, wow, now wait a minute. I mean, I prayed the prayer, but you don't expect me to do all that, do you? It says in 1 John 5 that his commandments are not burdensome. But lastly, we have this 
loyalty to God rather than the world because we believe the truth. Verse 18 and following talks about that. A Christian is going to be led deeper into the faith and not false beliefs. It's not going to depart from the belief because your belief determines your behavior. And one of the things that verse 19 is talking about, verse 18, it talks about the Antichrist coming and false doctrine. Verse 19, they went out, they went out among us and they twisted the truth. They proved they were not among us. You see, when you and I have that outward evidence, we're going to want to obey God more and more as we grow, love more and more as we grow, depart from, get the more and the more of the world. In fact, you know, there's a call to holiness here. We're going to recognize things. Well, you know, this isn't good for me. I'm going to depart from that and do something else because you believe the truth. But there's something foundational that I've already mentioned about an evidence. We have a witness of the life. Secondly, the witness of the Spirit. I want you to turn over with me to 1 John chapter 4, and uh, we're going to be looking at verse 13. It says, By this we know that we abide in him, and he is in us, because he has given us his spirit. Romans 8.16 says, The spirit testifies, witnesses, same word, with our spirit that we are children of God. Now this word know that's used 33 different times in uh, this passage, including verse 13, by this we know is an intimate word. It's an experiential word. It's the word gnosko from uh, the Greek language. And it has different, the word, it has an experiential type of thing. Now, you and I have a faith that's objective. We have the word of God. At the same time, it is subjective in a sense that there's a feeling to it. There's an experience with it all. In fact, this word is so intimate, it's used Really, the Hebrew equivalent is used with Adam and Eve being intimate. That Adam went in to know Eve and conceived a child. Abraham went in to his wife and Sarah and conceived a child. He knew her. This is the deepest intimacy. Why? Because it's a relational, experiential type of faith. Now, here's what John says in, in his gospel. Truly, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. He's saying, look, it's a supernatural thing. It's not a matter of going through this ritual or just coming to church or reading the Bible so many times and praying so many minutes a day and, and going through this ritual and that, and that thing, that religious exercise. It's a relationship because it's something that's supernatural. You and I repent of our sins and the Spirit of God as we receive Christ, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of our heart. And the Bible calls that to be born again, to be regenerated on the inside. The Bible says in Ephesians, Paul's writings, he says, look, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, but the Spirit of God has come to live inside your life and made you alive. That is an evidence that you sense and feel the presence of the Spirit of God. Listen, God, God is doing great things, but he does things through his Spirit. 1859, in Ireland, Northern Ireland, a little boy sat in a classroom in a little town. And he told the teacher, raised his hand, he told the teacher, he says, ma'am, I don't feel well. Can I go home? Small town. She said, sure, go ahead. 
And a couple of boys said, we'll, we'll, we'll see him home. We'll, we'll make sure he gets home. So the three of them walked out the door. About 30 minutes later, they came back. True story, by the way. He came back, and all three of them sat down at their desk. And the teacher looked at the little boy, and she, she said, are you okay? And she said, yeah, I'm fine now. She said, no, no, really, are you okay? And he said this. He says, I know I'm saved now. I'm okay. Silence in the room. And one little boy, other little boy got up, walked around, looked at the young boy, and said, teacher, can I go out with these two boys that he went out with? Because I'm not sure about my salvation either. Those two boys stood up. They began to talk to this group, this group, this group. Pretty soon, the entire room was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and those young people were getting saved. Their parents were called in. Suddenly, their parents were out on the lawn. People were sharing Christ with them. The pastors were now called in. They began to preach the gospel to some people. And that 1859, that revival began to spread with the Holy Spirit moving in a supernatural, powerful way to where 25% of the citizens of Northern Ireland received Christ within a two-year period. Man, wouldn't it be great to be something like, a part of something like that? Man, that's my bucket list. I want to be a part of something like that before I die, you know? But what about you? Just you personally, have you been a part of something like that? The Spirit of God moving inside of you. Well, you say, well, yeah, but I, I prayed and I prayed. How do I know? How can I know? Well, it's like this. It's a foundational type. It's kind of a reverse thing. On the top, on the surface, you see the outward experiences that we have, a changed life and, and a different uh, viewpoint of mankind as we love them. And having the truth and not loving the world, those are all on the top. And because under the surface is the power of the Holy Spirit. But under that and the how-to is from the Word of God. Here's what it says. 33 times I mentioned, he mentions the word no, and then we find the key verses at the end of the book. Look in chapter 5 and verse 11. And this is the testimony, that's witness, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. How do you know? How do you know? Because you've called upon the name of the Lord. Paul said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. John said, as many as received him, to them gave you the power to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. In the book of Acts, Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, Told the in the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, he asked the Ethiopian eunuch in that story in Acts 8, asked Philip, he says, what, what must I do to be baptized? He said, first believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. How do you receive Christ? By asking. But here's the thing. The Bible says you are saved by grace through faith. So I've asked, I've asked, I've asked, I've asked through faith. Not only do you believe by faith that he died on the cross for you, not only do you believe by faith that he rose again for you, but you also believe when you call on his name, he's going to save you. Nailing it down with the word of God. I told you my story. Anybody can doubt. Anybody can doubt. 
Here's this, my wife's story. Here's Pam's story. I had been a pastor's wife for about two years when we moved to Fort Worth, Texas to go to seminary. It was there that I began to wonder if the intellectual knowledge that I had of Christ was the same as my heart knowledge, and I doubted that it was. You see, I was saved at a young age. At the age of six, I made a decision to receive Christ into my heart, and then I was baptized. But as I grew up, I realized that I didn't really remember that time. I only remembered that people had told me that it had happened, and I had seen pictures of the time that I was baptized. At this time, when we were in seminary, I began to doubt whether or not I had received Christ. I was pregnant with Brandon at the time and began to wonder why and how I would even tell him about Jesus when I wasn't really sure that I knew who he was myself. So we had gone to church that Sunday evening, and the message was on assurance of your salvation. And I, we were lying in bed that night talking, and I asked Dwayne what he thought of the sermon. And he said, well, it was good, but it really didn't apply to me. And my response was that it did apply to me because I was unsure. At that point, I got down on my knees beside the bed and said to, to God, Jesus, if I have not received you into my heart, I pray that you would come in now and that I would never doubt whether or not I had received you as my personal Savior. Since that time, I haven't doubted, and I found confidence in, in my faith that I had never had before. And I know that if I were to die today, that I would go to heaven because I belong to him. Now, what's the rest of that story? Yeah, go ahead. That's great. Great testimony. Now, she told me that I was quite taken back because you certainly lived the Christian life. So I told her a story that I'd heard many years before, and I'll share with you today. Maybe you've heard it before, maybe you haven't. But it's a fictitious story about this farm boy who is doubting his salvation. In fact, every couple of weeks, he prays the prayer, and, and in his church, they had a come-forward invitation. So every few weeks, he was coming forward and, and wanting to be saved all over again because he just couldn't get in his head that God would save him. And so he's sitting uh, out in the pasture, decides to have a little lunch, pulls out his paper sack and uh, paper bag and sits down under this old oak tree. And he's contemplating all these things and he's contemplating on what the pastor had said the Sunday before. And he said this, Lord, I just want to nail it down. If I've never been saved, I want to pray one last time, save me. He prayed that prayer, and then he found a stick under the tree, pulled out his pocket knife, and carved in it, saved, and he had the date. He put down the date, and he drove that stake into the ground. A couple of weeks later, after being, living really in victory in his life, he began to doubt again. So he said, Satan, follow me. So he goes out in the pasture, points to the stick, and he said, there it is. That's the day I was saved. That's it. I nailed it down. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.